This is Radio Science, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Our mission, to probe the critical debates in archaeology in conversation between leading practitioners and the next generation of researchers. On October 30th, 2020, biocultural anthropologist Rachel Watkins at American University met with a panel of science students and faculty to discuss her recent article in Historical Archaeology, an altered native perspective on historical bioarchaeology, and an upcoming publication in Washington History, Science and Freedom. The discussion is about to begin. Stay tuned for Radio Siam. Hello, welcome to Radio Siams. My name is Matt Velasco, and I'm an assistant professor in anthropology at Cornell University. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Rachel Watkins, an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology at American University. We'll also be joined by Siams graduate students, Anna Whittemore and Amanda Dominguez, and the Hirsch postdoctoral fellow in Siams, Maya Dedrick. Now, Dr. Rachel Watkins is a biocultural anthropologist with an emphasis on African-American biohistory and social history, bioanthropological research practices, and histories of biological anthropology in the United States. Initially trained in skeletal biology, her doctoral dissertation examined relationships between health, disease, and social location among African-Americans living in Washington, D.C., during the late 19th and early 20th century, whose remains are in the Cobb Anatomical Collection. She has also written extensively on the scholarship and legacy of Dr. William Montague Cobb, the scholar who established the collection that bears his name and the first African-American to receive a doctorate in physical anthropology. She was also involved in the New York African Burial Ground Project, which stands as a model for engaged bioarchaeological research and collaboration with descendant communities. These projects have shaped a broader interest in how African-American skeletal remains and living populations were used in the development of research practices in U.S. biological anthropology and in the construction of racial categories and hierarchies in U.S. society more broadly. Dr. Watkins draws on black feminist theory and critiques of science to understand the relationship between the epistemological foundations of biological anthropology and social relations that naturalize the underrepresentation of blacks and other marginalized groups as researchers and their overrepresentation as research subjects. You will find her publications in journals such as American Anthropologist, Current Anthropology, and Historical Archaeology. Her work is also included in edited volumes focused on methodological and theoretical interventions in the study of human skeletal remains. For today's podcast, we read two pieces by Dr. Watkins, the first entitled An Altered Native Perspective on Historical Bioarchaeology, which appeared in a special issue of Historical Archaeology earlier this year. It takes on the subtle and not so subtle ways that people of color have been intellectually marginalized in the production of bioarchaeological knowledge. The second piece is a short form essay entitled Science and Freedom that will be published in a special issue of Washington History, aimed at responding to recent events in Washington and to this national moment. Please join me in a hearty virtual welcome to Dr. Rachel Watkins. Hello, Rachel. Hello, how are you? 
Good. Uh, we're so delighted to uh, have you here today for this conversation. And I want to begin with your own journey into bioanthropology. Your first piece in historical archaeology powerfully claims a legacy of African-American scholar activism from within the discipline rather than from without. Your second piece tells us a bit about your intellectual commitments as they are rooted in the history of Washington, D.C. I wondered if you could share with us a bit more about the context of your early intellectual formation and how you came to embrace or accept your positionality as both a scientific insider and a scholar activist. Yeah, um, thanks again for inviting me to uh, be here. So yeah, my journey actually starts in high school when one of my professors who I really respected and who was a great influence on me did a sabbatical in South Africa. Um, and let me specify, I'm Gen X. So we're talking about apartheid South Africa. She did a, a, a sabbatical for a year in apartheid South Africa. And when she returned to our school, she taught a class called Prejudice. It was a kind of upper level elective history class. And in that class, she had us read um, Stephen Jay Gould's The Mismeasure of Man. And that was kind of my introduction to anthropology, even though I wasn't entirely clear on what anthropology was at the time. We were kind of focused on how, of course, Dr. Gould was talking about, um, you know, the construction of racial difference and, and inequality. Um, and I was so, so taken uh, by that book in ways that you know, for some time I didn't even realize what an influence it had on me. But when it came time for us to graduate, you know, we would always have like a special speaker or something at the high school. And I actually went to the professor and to um, my high school librarian and said, we have to call Stephen Jay Gould because he needs to come and speak um, to our class. And very gracious, you know, graciously, may he rest in power, he answered the phone and he actually talked to me and he said, you know, Rachel, I would really love to come and I'm really honored, but my schedule is so busy. And if I add one more thing, my wife is going to just kill me. <laughs> so he didn't, he didn't make it, but um, that just speaks to the influence it had. So fast forward to college, I uh, elected intentionally to go to Howard University, which is a historically Black College and HBCU. My aunt um, went there and I visited her every summer in DC. So my connection to Howard was an intellectual one, but also a kind of social familial um, one as well. And I was known as, again, being Gen X, this is, you know, late 80s, early 90s. I was known as the Denise Huxtable of my dorm floors because I was changing my major every week. And I don't know if you remember between the Cosby show and a different world, that's kind of what Denise was doing. So when I finally got tired of changing my major every week, I sat down, I was like, okay, I got to figure, you know, this out. I can't be in school forever. And I kind of made a list of all of my interests. And, um, you know, anthro came up as an ideal uh, area of study that would allow me to combine my interest in the sciences and the, and the humanities. And so I pursued that. Um, I went to Michael Blakey uh, after I decided to declare my major. And he said, oh, well, your timing's perfect. 
I actually got an NSF recently to curate uh, Dr. Cobb's skeletal collection. And when he said that to me, I kind of, you know, quasi grimaced and said, well, you know, I really kind of want to be more like Zora Neale Hurston and do this and that, you know, I don't know about bones. And he kind of, you know, fluttered his eyes. <laughs> like, oh my goodness. And he explained to me, well, you know, you'll be studying the skeleton, but you're not just going to be studying it from a biological standpoint. And he explained to me, you know, who Cobb uh, was and what he did and his approach to studying human biology and how this was about continuing um, that legacy. So all that to say, my entree into anthropology was one that was very much so rooted in this kind of African descendant scholar activist tradition. And I don't take that for granted because I understand that, you know, in most cases, when you are introduced to anthropology, you, you find out about the people of color way after you uh, read canonical works and hear about people who are in the canon. Um, and so I also had the good fortune of being in school at Howard at the same time that the New York African burial ground was uncovered. Um, so, uh, and all of the remains, you know, came to Howard to the Cobb Laboratory for research. So I was able to work on the Cobb skeletal collection and then the New York African burial ground skeletal collection and kind of, you know, cut my teeth in anthropology, getting this kind of biocultural context of, you know, over 250 years of, of African descendant biohistory and social history. And so everything that was modeled for me, even the people who were not professors at Howard, um, but people who visited, you know, everything that was modeled for me was very much so um, uh, an integrated kind of scholar activism um, the understanding that these things are not separate from each other, that we're, you know, even if you don't see yourself as being politically situated, you know, you're, you're, you are. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's quite, um, so there are ways in which I feel comfortable doing that, um, for which I'm grateful at the same time, when I left Howard and continued on in my graduate school journey, um, yeah, there were some tensions. You know, there were some tensions based on my orientation and the ways in which we typically train folks in anthropology. But yeah, that that's um, that's it. That's a, what a fascinating story. Um, I'm, I, I must confess, I had not I didn't read Miss Measure of Man till graduate school. And I wonder what my orientation as a researcher, how I might have approached uh, much of my early studies differently through that lens. Um, yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah, that has so much to do with why I like to talk to elementary, middle, and high school students, because I'm aware I experienced, you know, the benefit of being introduced to these ideas really early. Thank you for sharing that. So I'm, I'm Anna Whittemore. I am a second year in the PhD program in the Department of Anthropology. Um, and my research is in the anthropological bioarchaeology of the Inca Empire. So I, I was about to ask a different question, but actually um, your point about um, talking to young students and, and uh, introducing these topics um, brought up a question that I was going to ask a bit later. Um, your articles and talk yesterday 
both discussed the under-citation and intellectual marginalization of the work on the Cobb collection, the African burial ground, the work of Cobb, um, other um, bioanthropologists who are Black or identify as people of color. Um, but you also said at one point that it's more than diversity. And um, I'm also familiar with critiques that uh, crediting these scholars as parts of the canon should be more than an exercise in um, adding token scholars to a curriculum. So I'm, I'm hoping you could talk a bit more about how to, about how that looks in the context of designing curricula for students who are new to um, these topics or doing outreach with young students, how to make um, more than surface level changes to the ways that we're talking about um, race and we're talking about anthropology. Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for that. Um, I think one of the things that I think I mentioned yesterday, um, and I, I think I also said that it's something I share with my students, um, is you know that it is really important to your point to go beyond representation. Yes, representation matters. And at the same time, it's really important that it not be, um, you know, that it's not a matter of tokenism. And that involves being really clear about what the benefits are. What are the particular ways in which people's um, different positionalities actually enhance uh, methodological and theoretical development? And one of the places in which I root that, my answer rather to that question, is in what I said yesterday about people who are socially located in ways that require them to theorize themselves into humanity on a daily basis. Yeah, there's a particular way that you have to see the world in relation to yourself and in relation to other people to, um, you know, to flip that and to contest that and to uh, not just contest that, but to also allow yourself to live and think in um, self-motivated ways. And, you know, just in the description there alone, um, that underscores what a sophisticated process that is. And it is a sophisticated process that, um, you know, across different social locations has similarities and differences. And these are the things that, you know, if these are living, breathing people who actually are a part of the social fabric, then the ways in which um, they are understanding the world are going to benefit all of us. Right? And so it's that's why I think it's really important to, um, for instance, bring someone like Cobb or, you know, whoever into a discussion that is typically reserved for, um, I guess, our canonical, you know, works to demonstrate to students. I mean, I think it's something that as an instructor, as a professor, you have to model that, you know what, to talk about general developments in anthropology around ideas of culture or around ideas of biology, you don't have to limit yourself to Boaz or limit yourself to folks with whom you're familiar based on training, you know, there are a range of people who have, um, have offered up uh, intellectual work that helps us to kind of understand and generally develop these, these areas. So it's really, I see it as a matter of modeling. Great, thank you. 
Hello, I'm really happy to be talking to you, Dr. Watkins. Uh, I am Amanda Dominguez. I am a third year PhD student in the Science and Technology Studies Department here at Cornell. And my research is um, a mix of STS and bioarchaeology because I'm actually not a bioarchaeologist, but I'm interested in how scientists, how bioarchaeologists specifically, uh, turn bodies into data. So I, I am probably going to do an ethnography of archaeological practices to try to figure this out. And what called my attention in your work, and more specifically in the um, article in historical archaeology, um, is about biocentricity. And my question is not a very easy one, but I'm, I'm hopeful that you're going to uh, shed some light in this uh, question that I have that you mentioned in your article that this biocentric ideology um, is the, the cause of structural inequalities in bioarchaeology, but it's not only a question of the lack of ethnographic visibility, as you argue in your article, but it's also due to methodological and theoretical developments in bioarchaeology. So my question for you is, how do we change these methods and theories? Is it possible? And what, I mean, in your conversation, uh, in your answer to Anna right now, I think you kind of gave an answer that the curriculum may be an answer, but what are the other things that we as researchers can do to change that? And do you really think that changing these methods and theories are gonna help us to get rid of this biocentric ideology? Yeah, thank you for that question. And I'm really glad that I wrote some <laughs> notes down because it is a, um, a big question. First of all, I wanna say I'm really excited about your research. It brings to mind laboratory life and we've not had anyone in the BioArc lab. So we need, we need that. So I'm really excited about um, your, your work. Um, as far as biocentricity and its relationship to, to method and theory, so Sylvia Winter actually does kind of construct this um, continuum or this connection between her ideas around biocentricity and method and theory. To her thinking, this fundamental uh, removal of certain groups of people from humanity shapes um, a lot of the, the, the method and the theory. So she would say that the biocentricity uh, has a lot to do with that and that it's the way of understanding how it is that these, um, these methods um, kind of stay the same or, you know, kind of continue to reinforce um, certain inequalities. Um, let me see, I'm trying to, I'm looking at my notes. So can we change it? I think so. I mean, one of the, the things that I also appreciate about Sylvia Winter's work and Black feminist theorists who critique science in particular is that part of their critique involves the resistance to transdisciplinarity in Western science. And a, a lot of these theorists argue that since it's the case that 
scholarship that is coming from what we colloquially refer to as the margins is rooted in a kind of inter, uh, interdisciplinary tradition that not bringing that transdisciplinarity or interdisciplinarity into the sciences forecloses, you know, um, the possibility of even exploring, you know, methodological and theoretical approaches that might not be a part of the traditional kind of Western um, process. So I do think it's possible. And I mean, one of the things, I mean, I like the idea of this notion of transdisciplinarity being a part of decolonizing science, because to her point about bringing a science of the word into our science, uh, scientific analyses. I mean, that she calls it languaging, you know, kind of taking on narratives, you know, scientific narratives in terms of how they show up in our practices and our social relations. And then, you know, I'm, my, my contribution is looking at how they actually show up in actual textual narratives um, is a way of, kind of breaking through and piercing some of these ideological barriers that get in the way of us thinking about certain methods in a scientific context. You know, so that, that transdisciplinarity allows us to go beyond a kind of scientific, unscientific binary that opens up possibilities. And so based on you know, her work and the work of other folks, you know, I decided to think about, okay, well, how, you know, what are the connections between Cobb's skeletal collection and Cobb's life and Cobb's correspondence with other uh, colleagues and his interaction with the public, right? And these are things that are typically um, you know, in our academic context, well, the historian would be studying this and the bioarchaeologist or the skeletal biologist would be doing that piece. But, um, you know, someone like Sylvia Winter is about the type of science where a scientist considers both. And it's not that I consider it in the same way that um, a historian would. However, it is pressing me and kind of moving me to consider the archival work um, as it relates to how it influences um, the way that we do research. Like I said, these are more than stories. You know, this whole race and runners narrative is much more than a story. It's instructive. You know, it's a, it's a guiding um, element in how bioanthropologists deconstruct race today. Thank you so much. That was very thoughtful. Hi, I'm Maya Diedrich, and I'm a postdoctoral associate at Siam. My research focuses on how farmers' lives changed during the colonial period in Yucatan, Mexico. And I really appreciated one of the things you were just saying was, uh, I appreciated the, the points that you made in the article for historical archaeology about the differences in language that might seem I mean, I, 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 maybe they don't, they're not minor, but there's differences in language in a particular text, you know, in terms of the reference to um, the descendant community, self-described descendant community in New York in terms of the um, African burial ground as 
African-Americans and referring to enslaved people as slaves, referring to a whole suite of scientists and historians as osteologists. So that was kind of the breakdown. Um, and I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about um, the power in the one term <laughs> versus the other. Um, and in particular, the, the nuance and importance of descendant community as a claim for, for those engaged uh, citizens. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, and something that relates to both um, your question and to Amanda's question as well, something that I, I wanted to, to make a point of, of speaking to is that there's a vital topics form in American anthropologist called how academic diversity is transforming scientific knowledge in bioanthropology. And there, again, speaking to how people um, who identify in different ways and who have different social locations kind of enhancing um, the intellectual project in, in bioanthropology, those are some great essays to check out. And you have people who identify as Black, Black and queer, you know, queer folks. I mean, it, so it's a, it's a really, really um, powerful set of essays that I'd like to encourage folks to read, and I certainly um, assign them in my classes. Now, in terms of the power of terminology, um, it's so funny. I kind of thought when I read that in the Human Bone Manual, I said, oh my gosh, this is like a gimme, <laughs> you know, because like, you know, oh, this, this, this overgeneralization. Um, you know, and I'm proud to say that the New York African Burial Ground Project had a lot to do with normalizing um, the use of the term enslavement versus slaves. And the reason why that's important and the reason why that's powerful is because, you know, the previous term, slaves, defines the people solely through that institution. You know, you're, you're, you're speaking to who they are and their existence in the context of the institution. Whereas if you talk about people being enslaved, you talk about the institution of enslavement, you're speaking more uh, accurately to how people are subjected to certain institutions. And then that uh, frees you up from having to uh, frame in all sorts of ways and analyze in all sorts of ways, um, in the case of the burial ground, the remains um, of those people solely in the context of enslavement, right? And so it, it, it provides, um, it's part of what provides the discursive and other aspects of space to examine and explore who these people were um, and the context of their lives before, during, and after enslavement. So the, the very use of the term enslavement is part of the process of being able to look at the lives of these folks in a diasporic context instead of, you know, just in the context of enslavement. And I think that's just one of, um, you know, many examples of the power of, of the terms that we use. And then we also see in the, the other part of the description where a whole suite of scientists are referred to as osteologists and, you know, Black folks who um, self-identify as a, an African descendant community and want us to recognize um, the African origins of many of the people who were buried there. Um, 
again, terminologies can be intentionally or not limiting. Right? So the use of the term osteologist um, leads one to believe that those are the only folks involved in the biological analysis when that wasn't the case. So that's how I see the, the power of, of the terms um, coming into play. Thanks very much. I want to continue on these <clears throat> on this discussion of, you know, in a sense, what that language that Maya is referring to, uh, slaves, osteologists, renders aspects of the humanity of both the researcher and the research subject invisible, right? It, it's an act of erasure. Um, and you call in your piece the need, quote, the need to create space for greater ethnographic visibility of bioarchaeologists. Your, your career has, has done this, right? You, you embody these ideals. And I wonder, right, pragmatically, or for a graduate student who is being socialized in the norms of academic writing, of scientific writing, are these aspects of our being, right, our, our human subject position and our scientific authority, are those, shall they ever meet, right? Um, can we make ourselves ethnographically visible, maybe in American anthropology? Can we do it in American Journal of Physical Anthropology? Will we be confined to separating these aspects of our uh, scholarly identity? And so maybe you know, more broadly, I don't, I'm not asking you for a publication plan, but what might you say to um, uh, grad, advanced graduate students or any graduate student or undergraduate, uh, as well as tenure track professors who may be struggling to find their voice within a discipline and within writing genres that cultivate a, a sort of erasure in the name of objectivity? It's such an important question, and I like the the realness, all of the realness in that question, because um, when you are in graduate school and when you are building your career, um, you know, it, as, as creatively as we all might think, there is a certain way that you are uh, told that you need to write, which is, you know, I mean, and there's evidence that you need to write a certain way um, and present your ideas in a certain way for you to be, for instance, published. And you know, the degree to which you're published has implications for your visibility and that visibility has implications for your employment and other things. So um, that, that is real stuff. And that is why it's often the case and certainly was the case when I was in graduate school that you're kind of told, um, you know, ten, tenure first, transformation later. You know, um, so you know, wait until you get tenure to do all of this uh, stuff. And that's certainly the case for me. So there's a way that I am, you know, kind of pleasantly enjoying a rediscovery of all of the things that brought me to anthropology. And, you know, I have a, a freedom and um, a, a sense of job security that leaves me comfortable doing that, knowing that not everybody is um, in that position, you know, one of the things my colleagues and I are attempting to do is make these ideas as visible as possible in terms of our publications so that folks who are in graduate school and folks who are assistant professors 
are aware that we're out here and that there is, um, you know, I, I would say now that there's arguably a critical mass of us who can provide the type of protection and support that, um, you know, leaves you not having to wait until tenure to be transformative or to um, express your more creative or transdisciplinary ideas. And so that's why, as <laughs> you know, sometimes we all know it's it's frustrating um, with with publications. There's the dreaded reviewer number two, and sometimes it's one, two, and three who don't <laughs> provide the warmest reception to your work. But to my point about a critical mass of people providing support and embracing these ideas, um, the publication of an alternative perspective in historical archaeology has everything to do with Shannon Novak, who is a white identified woman who's a bioarchaeologist at, at Syracuse, um, having a similar orientation and wanting to kind of bring a level of visibility to these types of ideas um, that up to this point hadn't happened. So, and, and I can assure you that there were some times at which she had to run interference for me because of reviewer responses. So it, it you know, so the ideas around allyship and ideas around, uh, you know, having a critical mass and support are really important. Um, and so, you know, I just want to make it clear that my publication plan, if you will, um, has not only everything to do with me and, and having a sense of, of presence to put my ideas out there, but you have to have people in place to um, support that, right? And I'm, I'm happy to report that that is the case. Um, I will also say that, yeah, in terms of my, my, my publication plan, so in recent years, I've had some opportunities to be a part of conversations, you know, some of these race and genetics conversations that um, perhaps previously I would have, I won't say I would have shied away from them, but I wouldn't have necessarily pursued them. But um, in opening myself up to that, I realized I would be opening myself up to um, perhaps publishing in certain venues where it would be really helpful for a graduate student or an assistant professor to see these ideas. Um, so, yeah, like that, that's, yeah, that's kind of what I have to say about that. But yeah, there's a very real and, you know, utilitarian piece to it. But it's also very encouraging to hear you as someone who has tenure, associate professor, uh, widely recognized in the field to say how you also to some degree rely on the allyship of others right i mean and i i do i think that there's a sense of that kind of sense of autonomy and individuality is so is part of this character of academia right where you need to do it yourself uh, you need to be independent you need to be authoritative and i think um it's not that's not a negation right of of your authority as an author, but it kind of, it places you in a social network, right? And maybe I think that there's some degree that, um, I don't know if it's our discipline, bioarchaeology to some degree is a younger discipline. The networks are a little closer. Um, there's kind of th this 
we can almost, we have a really strong sense of our genealogy as well in part of that, both the, the, the sources of pride and sources of shame. Um, and I, I really love how you kind of bring together this aspect of kind of the sociality of, of the work we do and the, the, that it's, it's okay. It's not only okay to kind of seek that support or to um, expect that support, but then for others to now in your position to be offering that to, to those who are on the tenure track or those who are in graduate school, um, that gives me some hope. Yeah, it's really important. I mean, anthropology has been quite resistant to even valuing um, you know, co-authored publications in the ways that we author, um, value single author publications. And I mean, that certainly um, you know, has implications for people's tenure review, pre-tenure review, what have you. But um, I will say that the first publication that really kind of laid out the ideas that I've continued to develop is something that um, you know, came out of many years of thinking through um, analysis of the cop collection with Jennifer Muller, who um, did her dissertation, and she's over there across the way at Ithaca uh, College. She did her dissertation on the Cobb collection as well. And I think that without us kind of having a period of time where we were working together and thinking through these ideas, I mean, I, it, it certainly would have taken both of us and certainly me individually longer to, to get there. So there's a real, you know, there's a real value. And I, you know, that's not something that is unique um, or, or the, I'll say it's very much a part of the African descendant scholar activist tradition to do this kind of co-laboring. And so part of my journey has involved kind of returning to the core of, um, you know, the, the, the kind of intellectual core of who I am and, and doing that, um, you know, boldly and, and confidently knowing that it's going to benefit others in the same way that it, it benefited me. Thank you. This is Anna again. Um, yeah, I really appreciate the open discussion about the nuts and bolts, the practical side of um, doing this kind of work, because I think that it's not as, as simple as having an um, a open discussion. There are a lot of um, real barriers to um, making the field of anthropology better. Um, sort of on a similar note, something that I've been thinking about for a little while, this is um, a bit more peripheral to the content of your papers, though it's still definitely related to um, work with the um, New York African Burial Ground. Um, but I've been thinking about ways that um, we can make community engagement and um, principles of um, respect and including public voices more central to bioarchaeology. And I've, I've been wondering for a while of having mechanisms like including the study of human skeletal remains in an IRV or some sort of institutional mechanism like that is something that you see as being helpful or if it would just become another um, administrative check checkbox on people's lists. Uh, I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, and it, it is very much so related to my, you know, kind of processing around 
the William Montague Cobb skeletal collection because um, you know, one of the things that I mentioned in an alternative perspective and something that I take on more directly in um, a piece called uh, Anatomical Remains is Bioanthropological Other is the fact that while um, skeletal remains of people, you know, that have an archaeological context, in, in other words, um, human skeletal remains that are attached to a particular burial ground or a burial context um, have a lot of mobilization around them. Um, you know, in the New York African Burial Ground, you have communities that are working to protect, you know, cemeteries and former burial grounds that are even perhaps, you know, sites of parking lots or other things now. And while all of this reflection and mobilization is going on in that area, nothing's really going on with these anatomical collections. They're considered to be, you know, in a protective environment and just kind of you know, their, their presence as, um, you know, research subjects, as these sorts of always already research subjects in museums and institutions, you know, it's very much so um, naturalized. And so one of the things that uh, Michael Blakey actually wanted to do at the very, um, when we were coming to the end of, the, of, of curating the Cobb collection is he wanted to publish the names of the people in the collection in the Washington Post to give people the opportunity to come forward and claim the remains of their relatives because the Cobb collection dates between 1932 and 1969. So clearly, you know, it, there, there are some folks for the people who were lifelong, lifetime residents in DC maybe even not there are probably some relatives there and i'm not sure what happened with that why he wasn't able to do that i think there was some concern around ethics related to some of the people who were dated later in the collection i don't it wouldn't have been um in terms of our ethical practices i don't think it would have been okay to to publish the names of the folks who um, died in the 50s and 60s at the time and so he held off but um, one of the things that is happening now around some anatomical collections is that ethnographic work is being done. I mean, this is, and this is why the, the interdisciplinarity, the transdisciplinarity is important because one of the, the, the key ways that you can kind of begin the process of developing some sort of community engagement or even the construction of a descendant community around um, an anatomical collection is to go around and ask people what they know about it. You know, ask elders in, in D.C., you know, longtime residents of D.C., you know, what do you know about, you know, fill in the blank. Um, so I see that that ethnographic piece, I see that, um, yeah, I see that piece being really, in a really important part. So all that to say, not always waiting for, or it's not always a matter of having the community mobilizing and coming to us as scientists. We need to go to them as well. We need to have a protocol established for that. And um, yeah, I don't want to give out any names since stuff isn't official, but I'm really glad to say that I have been called on to assist with developing some community engagement protocols around some anatomical collections that you're likely to hear about in the near future. Great, thank you. 
So Amanda here again. Um, I'm really interested in the idea of ethnographic visibility that you talk about in your historical archaeology article. And I was, as I told you, I am planning to carry out an ethnography of a laboratory as a as you 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 pointed out. So do you see that this kinds of ethnographies of laboratories, specifically bioarchaeology laboratories, do they contribute to this ethnography, ethnographic visibility on its one part of my question? And the second part of my question is, how do you see uh, scholars or students who are not um, identified, who are not uh, African-American, but who want to contribute to this, to get read of this uh, biocentricity, how do you see them contributing to this visibility? Yeah, that's a great question. So in terms of the latter question, what's great is that that's already happening in the form of people like Ken Nystrom, who I mentioned last night, I think, kind of exploring um, ideas of structural violence around anatomical collections, the way that they were established. Um, the process of dissection and extending that into, you know, kind of looking at how perhaps bioarchaeologists and bioanthropologists who study skeletal remains are contributing to that structural violence. Um, I think the, the point of departure between, say, my and, and Ken's argument, um, or it's really kind of a connection more than a departure, is that I'm really interested in looking at what the specifics of that structural violence is. You know, what are the particulars of that structural violence? And part of that structural violence involves the treatment of the remains and how they're situated as these always already research subjects. And then I also see part of the structural violence playing out in terms of the social relations, um, you know, the social context within which knowledge is created that normalizes you know, positioning people of color as research subjects and, you know, having a very limited role in the knowledge production process. So, um, you know, so I think that, you know, Ken is an example of someone who is a, you know, white identified male who's thinking about these things. And, and Molly Zuckerman is somebody who's also explicitly talked about it. Uh, Deb Martin and her work with, um, her previous work with Jonathan Crandall and, and other folk, you know, she talks about, um, what is it, post-mortem agency, right? So there, there are various ways in which, our, you know, within our community in which people are uh, trying to talk about this kind of um, afterlife, if you will, of, of skeletal remains in, in various ways, so. Um, I do absolutely want to recognize that. Um, the first question, I can't remember, what was the first question? <laughs> so if you think that the ethnography, yes. yes. Yes, the ethnographies are absolutely important. Like I, said, I, I have not read Laboratory Life in ages, but as soon as you describe your work, I was like, oh my gosh, it's like laboratory life for bioarchaeology. This is so exciting. Um, absolutely. I envision your work kind of, you know, bringing 
um, and ethnographic visibility to bioarchaeology that um, same as laboratory life did to regular, you know, to, to scientific laboratory. So it's very exciting. Um, I know that, you know, if I recall, Latour's ethnography was focused more on the process of um, constructing knowledge and, you know, con and, and, and kind of constructing data. Um, and it sounds to me as if you will also be kind of looking at the ways in which scientists are interacting in the laboratory and how that reflects um, social relations outside of the laboratory in the interest of, you know, demonstrating how these things are a part, these spaces are a part of one another rather than kind of reinforcing this idea of a laboratory being a pristine, kind of not socially embedded space. So yeah, I think it's really, really important, you know, because I think that, you know, again, there are ways that I could think of myself as someone who is, you know, who, who identifies as African descendant, African American. And there are, there are ways in which perhaps when I was younger and certainly a college student that I kind of assumed, okay, well, I'm taught in this tradition and, you know, I'm African American. So of course, you know, the way that I study skeletons, human skeletal remains is okay. You know, like I've, I've, you know, crossed off, you know, I've, I've done my checks that I need to do to do it the right way. And, you know, fast forward, you see that, um, you know, when I, when I published um, repositioning the Cobb Human Archive, that came out of Jen and I talking about how, you know, for all of this archival data that's associated with the Cobb collection, we were really kind of involved in limiting um, the way that, that that archive is presented, you know, and that we were very much so invested in a focus on the skeletal remains. And we, you know, kind of talked through how that reflected a particular investment in reproducing scientific knowledge that needed to be checked. You know, so, um, and, and I think these are the sorts of things that, you know, in addition to coming out of people talking through things, I think that the ethnographic research is going to very readily bring that to light in some very necessary and important ways. Thank you so much. That gives me uh, hope. <laughs> and I'm really excited. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dr. Watkins, for sharing your insights with us today. And as I think our, our responses to your questions illustrate, uh, inspiring us to think about, you know, our own work in dialogue with yours and in dialogue with the larger legacy of African-American scholar activism um, that is, is, I think, finally being, getting the kind of just recognition that, that it deserves. Yeah, thank and, you, this is really exciting. You've been listening to Radio Siams, a podcast of the Cornell Institute of Archaeology and Material Studies. Radio Siams is produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. Thanks for listening. Thank you.